0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Brendan Crabb. Brendan is the CEO and Director of the Burnett Institute in Melbourne. He's also a trained scientist, a public health expert and a fellow of the Australian Academy of Science. Brendan joined me to discuss in-depth the scientific reality of COVID-19 for everyone in Australia right now. We cover topics including the public messaging around COVID-19, the public health measures that would assist in reducing COVID-19 transmission in the community, plus the practical things that individuals, local communities, small businesses big businesses and governments can do to stop the spread of COVID-19. With a federal inquiry into long COVID and repeated COVID infections underway, Brendan delves into the science around long COVID, what we know about it both locally and globally, the potential treatments that may become available in the future, as well as the risks of post-COVID complications. The demographics most at risk of both might surprise you. It is my absolute delight and pleasure to welcome back onto the program Professor Brendan Crabb. Brendan is Director and CEO of the Burnett Institute in Melbourne. He is a microbiologist and parasitologist. He's also president of both the Australian Global Health Alliance and the Pacific Friends of Global Health, and he just recently became a fellow of the Australian Academy of Science. Brendan is joining me once again to talk all things COVID-19 because, as we know, anyone who tunes into this show, you'll certainly know that the pandemic is not over and that there's still a huge amount to discuss and to think about talk about and hopefully take action on and that is what this conversation is about so we're going to cover a whole range of areas including uh, infection transmission so some epidemiological questions we'll also talk about long COVID vaccination public health measures etc cetera, etc cetera. so without further ado I welcome back onto the show Brendan Crabb hi there Brendan and thank you very much for coming back
1: Amy my absolute pleasure to be back It really is. I enjoyed my chat before and uh, a lot's changed. And of course, a lot's not changed since we last spoke.
0: Indeed. Yeah, I think it was like earlier this year and we had such a great response to the last interview with you and I really enjoyed it too. So I can't wait to talk about these topics. There have been many issues and questions that have been weighing on my mind, and I know many of our listeners' minds, and they've certainly contacted me to say so. So I think they'll also be listening carefully to what you have to say, Brendan. I also want to mention to anyone that Brendan is on Twitter, and you can find him via his handle at Brendan. Brendan, let's first of all talk about where Australia stands at the moment in terms of COVID-19 and its transmission. Because what is really interesting to me is that there was a kind of significant moment on September 30, where National Cabinet met and Paul Kelly, the Chief Medical Officer, gave a speech, as did Anthony Albanese, the fairly new Prime Minister of Australia. And there was essentially a very interesting slash odd message, which is that it's time to move away from COVID exceptionalism. And we should be thinking about what to do to protect people from any respiratory disease. So basically conflating COVID-19 with the flu or a cold or any other type of respiratory virus. So with that context or that prompt as a starting point, where do we stand now with that moment, September 30, where ISO rules were lifted to now in the start of December?
1: Well, I had a, quite a bit to say on that day that you're talking about. I used the word distressed on national ABC television, actually, which is a strong word. And I, but I genuinely felt it. And the main reason I was distressed and the main reason I also said I think I found it illogical and wrong is that COVID is exceptional. There is no, way shape or form you could describe it as anything other than exceptional you know conflating it with other infectious diseases you say of course influenza is a disease that was used I think specifically used we'll treat it like the flu well you know this year we've had something like 300 influenza deaths and 1,700 or so people have been to hospital for influenza. It's a very serious disease. I used to uh, work on it. And of course, it can be worse than that. Two or three times worse is not unusual. It's a really serious disease. But COVID is 40 to 50 times worse, 40 to 50 times more deaths, uh, 40 to 50 times more hospitalizations. On the very day that Paul Kelly and the, said that and the Prime Minister repeated it, we had more people in hospital for COVID than we've had in for flu for the whole year. So it's enough to just make you collapse with disbelief. You know, that's how serious it is. And that's not catastrophizing. It's just fact of life, right? So, so this COVID is not exceptional seems to be a particular and deliberate approach to downplay it. In a way that I have to say is is probably the realm more for philosophers and you know psychologists than it is for me to understand the reasons why. But COVID is exceptional. It's uh, it's you know we are going to lose around twenty five thousand people this year Australia who are going to die of co- of COVID or of what we call excess deaths because of the pandemic people will die who would otherwise not have died. That's why they're called excess deaths. And around half of those to 60% will be directly COVID and the other half driven by the pandemic in in ways that I might talk about a little bit later. Hundreds of thousands of Australians have been to hospital and there's a long COVID inquiry going on at the moment, but uh, there's anything like half a million or so Australians with long COVID. Officially 10 million people have had COVID in Australia, a couple of hundred thousand have had influenza, more likely closer to 20 million Australians have had COVID many two times, sometimes three times. When I talk about excess deaths and 25,000 Australians having excess deaths, for the last 70 or so years, on average, we have a negative excess deaths per year. In other words, life expectancy increases, right? Because we're dealing with infectious diseases through preventative measures. We know how to you know, you know about sanitation and clean water and hygiene practices. We've got vaccines, really good vaccines for so many, especially childhood diseases. And that's meant fewer people have died every year from the war, Second World War to now on average and life expectancy increases. And now all of a sudden we've had this massive uh, hit and there's no end in sight. So where we are right at the moment, Amy, to so your question is rising Cases off a very high base. Another point that might come up I don't really like talking much about waves because we never go down that much, Um, but we are on the increase at the moment. Look, waves do matter because when they reach a certain level, a lot of other health issues that are independent of COVID are threatened because. Our health services don't work the same way. Our emergency services don't work the same way. Our hospitals don't work the same way. Our primary health care is so stretched. So peaks matter, but, but there's not this big relief that all of a sudden when things go down, there's no COVID. It never reaches a low point. Right? So sustained high COVID, we're on the upsurge again, and I don't think the public have a clue. That it's as serious as it is in an ongoing way, because for whatever reason, it's treated like it's over, like it's not exceptional. You know, to a degree, it can be like we're living in a faulty towers episode. You know, don't mention the war type thing. No one wants to talk about COVID, even though there's disruption all around us. You know, even when our hospitals aren't functioning well, even when there's ambulance uh, problems with ambulances. Even when there's issues with our schools, no one wants to talk about COVID. It's weird, but that's the world that we live in at the moment. What I can say is that it's very much still going, but it's different, and it's important to understand that difference. And I would say that we haven't handled change in the pandemic very well. We've treated change, even quite positive things that have happened, we've treated it like victory each time. And, you know, instead of seeing it like it really is, and I think that that's what's happening right now, that's what happened when Omicron arose, that's what happened when we got doubly vaxxed in the first place, we treat significant change as victory and it's a big mistake because it makes us super complacent.
0: Yeah, it's like inserting an artificial bookend, like, oh, well, we're done with that chapter, well done, team.
1: Let's move on.
0: Yeah. At the moment, anecdotally, it seems for people I know, it's easier to say who doesn't have COVID than who does because just everywhere around me I hear about people saying they've got COVID right now, their family's got COVID. Uh, It's going through families because it's so transmissible and we have these new variants as well in the community. And I wanted to, I guess, draw together a few threads, still following on from what Paul Kelly said Because I think he also kind of inadvertently raises some other points. He wasn't trying to raise it, but I think we'll raise it through his points. So at that very momentous occasion, which I was also distressed by, he said that at the moment, we have very low rates of both cases, hospitalizations, intensive care admissions, aged care outbreaks, and various other measures that we've been following very closely. We also have at the moment very high hybrid immunity from previous infection, as well as high vaccination rates, particularly and specifically in those highly vulnerable communities, older people, people in aged care, people living with a disability and the ones we've talked about before. So he was using those factors, which he thought were a good sign, to say we can just lift the requirement to isolate for five days, which was already inadequate. Now, he raises really interesting points about we've got low case rates. That was in September, as you pointed out. Well, was that really the case? But also that that was some kind of rationale for removing further public health measures. And to me, it seemed a bit like an oxymoron to say, oh, great, we've got less cases now. Let's just lift all of the other things that were suppressing them so that we can have a Mm. further spike. Was that Or is that partially driving this spike? You know, the fact that we did remove requirements to isolate because presumably there isn't that kind of impetus now in the community to test on a rat to get a PCR because PCRs are very hard to come by now. They're certainly not really accessible at a free level through those drive-in clinics because you have to go to your GP and pay your GP to get a form to get a PCR. You know, there's a whole range of things now that seem to be driving Further cases, and it seems like the very reasons that we removed isolation are actually causing transmission.
1: Yeah, well, it's certainly not making matters better. It has to be making matters worse. I mean, you've only got three significant interventions you've got vaccines, vaccination, you've got breathing clean air in one way, shape, or form, and we can talk about how that might be. That includes a mask if you can't breathe clean air, but otherwise, breathing clean air and you've got testing and what you do with a result. Um, you hopefully get treated if you're eligible uh, with a very good drug that's out there. And you definitely try and make sure you don't pass that on to other, You know, be the end of that transmission chain. So that's all there is. And why I said illogical in response to your first question when um, mandatory isolation was removed, is Paul Kelly said this was at a very low point it's actually the very moment you keep isolation because it costs you nothing, right? Isolation only costs you if people, lots of people have COVID. So, so you keep that in. Obviously, the few people that do get COVID get tested. They isolate, stop transmission chains and keep it low. It's not costing you money. It's not costing you many people away from work. That one in particular is completely illogical. It's actually much more logical to not have it when numbers are really high. Because, you know, he used cost as a factor and and workforces, when when n- numbers are really high, it's going to cost you a fortune. So, so I didn't understand it at all. I certainly don't agree with most of those points. I mean, relatively speaking, were there less cases to January, February when we had an explosion of cases? Was it, you know, July and August we had an explosion? Clearly they were lower case numbers at that time. Clearly, we had less people in hospital. As I say, I think we reached a bottom of around 1,400 in people in hospital. The maximum people in hospital is only three times that, right? So a wave is not you know, going from something like 1% to 100%. It's only a threefold difference or so. Right? So the numbers are always high. So I, I find that quite a misleading thing. Oh, COVID's like almost gone now. Let's get rid of all of the... Uh, it It just wasn't true. The other bit that's not true is that we're well-vaccinated. We are not well-vaccinated. We were well-vaccinated. Australia did a pretty amazing thing in its first 18 months to two years. It got most of us with two doses of vaccine before we had virus in our community to any great extent, right? So so this is a big five-star performance for all of the challenges and, and, and so on to get to that, to get to that point. Before Omicron came along, we'd already realised that you needed a third dose. We're already saying it really, you know, if there was such a thing as full-dose vaccination, it wasn't two doses, it was three doses. Then Omicron came along where two doses was almost irrelevant and we needed the third and then and then this, this further booster. But the third-dose booster rates in Australia are at around 55%, and they've been flat for the best part of six months, right? Somewhere like Singapore, which we get compared to, I've heard Paul Kelly say Australia's highly vaccinated, like Singapore, but they're way higher in their booster rate than us, at around eighty percent or so of uh, even higher of eligible people. So most of those points, I would have issue with virtually all of them. And in fairness to Professor Kelly, it'd be great to ask him these questions and see. I mean, no, Paul, and he's a very sensible guy, and he has lots of good things to say and a fantastic track record in trying to protect the community. So I'd like to know where those things came from. But how they played out was the Prime Minister saying, hey, my Chief Medical Officer has said COVID's no longer exceptional and we can all breathe a big sigh of relief. That's what I heard, and and that's why I was distressed. Right, I wasn't distressed that isolation went. I wasn't distressed that people said, Maybe mask wearing wasn't going to be mandatory in various places. And so I was distressed that this false paradigm was being set up that somehow we had nothing to worry about anymore. And the biggest concern behind that is that maybe the strategy is to get infected, to your point about hybrid immunity. Right? Um, I mean, clearly they don't want. Vulnerable people to get infected, they've been absolutely clear about that the whole time. So okay, we need to protect the more vulnerable in our population. That's the consistent narrative that they've never swayed from that. But I think for the rest of us, you'd have to conclude that the strategy is to get infected, to build up immunity on top of our brilliant vaccine immunity that, that the government, all governments can be rightly proud of. So we think this hybrid immunity thing is our way out of it, right? Unfortunately, it's proven to be not only wrong from the start, if I can just say it is never okay to get infected with a pathogen as a part of your strategy to not be infected with that pathogen. Never. No infection, RSV, influenza, herpes simplex virus, never, ever. And I doubt Anyone will come out and say that was the deliberate strategy, but everything's pointing to it is quite okay to have our kids get infected, most of whom are not not vaccinated anyway. It is quite okay to have those who are not elderly or immunocompromised get infected. In fact, it's a good thing. That's the message, really, that, that's, that's being delivered to me. So it's never good in the first place because you're being infected with a pathogen that's doing things that you know about and that you don't know or we're worried about, long COVID-related issues for everyone, not just for those who are most vulnerable. But the second and most important point is that it's not working. The worst wave we had of the year was July, August, September, not January, February. We had more hospitalizations and more deaths in July, August, September and it's worth dwelling on for a moment because we had had much better vaccination by that stage, right? We had almost no one boosted in our January wave. We had almost fifty percent or so boosted by the July August wave. We'd also had most of Australia infected, so therefore with this magical hybrid immunity protection on top of their vaccination, we also had a good drug from April onwards to be used two drugs, in fact, one in particular, Paxlovid, is really effective. So with all of those things, you think we'd be going pretty well. But we went through the first Omicron wave, the BA1 wave, then we went through BA2, then we went through BA4, 5, and particularly this BA5, which caused uh, so much trouble. So it was worse in reality. So we lost, we had many more people in hospital, and we had more deaths in that time. So I doubt Most people know about their actual COVID deaths as well as excess deaths. This issue of COVID driving deaths in other people not diagnosed as COVID. But when you think about that happening on top of increased immunity and increased access to therapies that work, that really work, we're just not keeping a lid on it, right? So, how would you go from that position to then say, oh, let's give this hybrid immunity thing another go? I just I find that, as I say, apart quite apart from the fact that you should never use infection, you know the the days of chickenpox parties are gone. Right, yeah. we don't do that anymore for for good reason. It turns out chickenpox is a herpes virus, varicella zoster virus. It ends up in our ganglia and our nervous system for life, and in many people comes back out of shingles later in mm. life. Right, it's the same virus that you got as a kid. We don't do chickenpox parties anymore. But that's kind of the the hybrid immunity philosophy. So that is the most worrying aspect for me. I'm pretty public about saying what I wish more than anything was that our senior politicians, our prime minister and our premiers and our chief ministers and their health ministers would come clean, basically, with a real life message. It is exceptional. We don't have to stress about it. We know what to do, but it is exceptional And we're going to change a few things. The message is more important than the rules, right? I'm fond of saying that because I really believe it. What I'm worried about more than that is what's behind their lack of correct messaging. And what's behind it is that infection is our strategy, I think. And if it's not, I'd like them to come out and say it's not and why it's not because it sure looks like it to me.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's exactly what it looks like. And we haven't just heard politicians say hybrid immunity, but we've heard even some of the chief health officers, not all, but some talk about rich hybrid immunity, which I thought was quite interesting, a way to describe it. It also falls down that idea of rich hybrid immunity or hybrid immunity because of the different variants that keep emerging within the Omicron group. We have so many new ones now, and some of them are currently taking hold across different states, some more than others. And uh, it does seem to demonstrate that if you were infected with an Omicron variant at the start of Omicron, that kind of natural protection with antibodies you have don't seem to give you much protection against infection for the ones down the line that we're facing right now. Would you agree with that broadly? Like, And could you share some more of the nuance of the arguments or the weighing up of understanding around natural immunity and that as a concept?
1: Yeah, look, i would really happy to because it is an area of nuance. Mm. I mean, I, I'll just start by saying from my perspective, hybrid immunity is not a strategy it should never be a strategy and you should never get infected to not get infected so i'll start with that but it is still a fact of life that people have either vaccine based immunity infection based immunity or or a version of both and so it's a phenomenon that we need to to understand and it's real when you get infected with SARS-CoV-2 most people recover right and the reason they recover is their immunity kicks in it's real right it's fantastic. And when that happens on a population scale, the wave disappears. The wave disappears because you've got immunity, right? The next time a new variant comes and it's immunologically different, the reason it's immunologically different is because immunity worked, right? Your immunity is good. It is good. And there's a specially good part to it that we need to try and mimic in the next generation vaccines, and that is your... You know, the, the vaccines that we take are really good, but they elicit what we call systemic immunity, immunity in your blood system, which is very good at anti-disease. It's not so good. It does work for transmission, but not so good for transmission because it's not a listening immunity at the site of infection and at the site of transmission, which is your respiratory tract. Right? So a natural infection elicits a kind of immunity that operates right there at that site very effectively it's called mucosal immunity because that's where your mucosa is in your in your respiratory tract so these are where some of the good lessons so an immunologist like myself says oh how can we make a vaccine that does that without obviously the negative impact of actually having had the disease and therefore maybe getting long COVID and all the rest of it so infection-based immunity is very real we can learn a lot from it you know, it doesn't mean an individual can't benefit from it. You might encounter a virus soon after your infection and not get sick because you you, you had that immunity, right? So there's, a, there's not a good and bad here. Overall, we're not winning with it. It's dangerous anyway because you get sick. You can't actually predict who's going to get really sick. Of course, we know some of the higher risk groups and we certainly can't predict who's going to get long COVID and have serious consequences uh, down the track as a result of that serious mild medium. And then we can't even predict what we don't know, right? You're getting infected with a pathogen that's, that's new. But it's still something we can learn a lot about. My point is that we're just not winning with hybrid immunity. Look at the United Kingdom, for example. They've had a lot more infections than us. You know, Australians have had BA1, BA2, BA4, 5. I think the, the the sense is that sort of 70 to 80% of Australians have had at least one of those infections, probably a bit higher, perhaps 10 or 15% have had two, uh, probably a bit higher, And and quite a number of us have had three. But in the UK, it's much more than that. Most people have been exposed multiple times. They still have a hospitalization rate that's still really high. But they still have a death rate. It's nothing like their their big peaks in the alpha and delta wave pre-vaccine where you know they let the virus run in a way that Australia thank goodness did not. But they're running at an excess death toll in the UK of about 15%. Right? That's a lot of extra people. Remember excess deaths should be negative. And in a place like the United Kingdom, Australia They have been negative for a very long time each year. They're still running three years after they're first exposed to COVID, their population, and one of the best vaccinated groups in the world, especially early on, with a very significant COVID problem, right? It is not the magic bullet solution. And what you run the risk of, there's over a million and probably closer to 2 million people in the UK with long COVID. That's not all historical. They're getting it now. So... You know, I'd like to think that the experiment's already been pretty clearly done. Unfettered transmission as a way to somehow magically end the pandemic is not going to work. And it's just going to lead to this trail of injury that we actually can avoid or at least minimize with the tools that we have. So the the net result is you have this strategy that I think is getting infected. Leading to a messaging that's really poor. Hey, don't worry about COVID anymore; it's pretty over. And you know, and then you have the same politician saying, "Hell, please get the vaccination rates up because our, our booster rates are only at fifty-five percent." And I say, "Who's going to get vaccinated if you're telling them on the one hand it's over? Right, why would you for Joe and Blog's public? Why, why would you? You wouldn't blame them at all, being told it's over." So so here we are in Australia where we're not taking up the interventions we have. In many cases, it's harder to get that intervention. You already referred to testing, right? We had a faint rat positive in our family yesterday, went and got PCR tested. It was so hard. We needed a GP. Ref- we know what we're doing, right? We, we still needed yeah. a GP referral and got off. It turned out that the, the four of us were negative, thank goodness. But um, it wasn't easy to get that. PCR test it's not easy to get boosted the whole boosting thing we now know that you know what you really need it isn't about third or fourth dose it's about when you got vaccinated if it was six months or so ago you better get another one you know Mm. is is my view and yet someone like me can't get another dose so it can be can be even harder to get to get vaccinated if you want to isolate where's the payments for isolation if you want to ventilate your office buildings and so on where's the drive to do that where's the information that's a good thing to do in the first place it just seems hard at every turn to take the simple mitigations that would make a big difference and what is important to understand is you don't need much to make a big difference you know the reproductive rate even when we're going through one of these waves at the moment is never much more than about 1.3 the difference between a reproductive rate of 1.3 that's 10 people giving COVID to, say, 13 other people, right? And 0.9, 10 COVID-infected people giving it to nine others. The difference in that is is not much at all, right? Mask wearing going up, a good burst of vaccine coverage, much better ventilation, for example. Those sort of things can easily bring that. It's not like you're going from a reproductive rate of five to to zero. It's say 1.3 to to 0.9, very easily achievable. But the difference is, an exponentially growing pandemic like we are right now, we're in the middle of a our of a, a fourth wave for the year, or a declining one. And if you have a reproductive rate of 0.9 or 0.8 for a prolonged period, actually you, you, the virus largely disappears. So it's not a big ask to have a, a mindset shift. I think one of the reasons where governments, good governments with good people, I mean, I really do... I actually quite like our federal government. It's been a breath of fresh air. You know, it's delivered so much to me and the people I know and like. So I'm I'm finding it really hard to work out why they have this attitude to COVID. But I think one of the reasons is it's too hard. The sense is it's just too hard. But it's not. It's actually not too hard with a good, honest, straight talking, without even a rule change. You know, maybe making N95 masks available for free you know, maybe keeping some sensible ISO payments, definitely keeping testing, but with some good straight-talking messaging to say, you know what, it is exceptional. It's much worse than the flu. In fact, it's probably making flu worse, incidentally, because every one of us is getting COVID, sometimes multiple times in a year. That just doesn't happen like with any other infection. There's an immune element to that. We've talked about hybrid immunity and the positive side of becoming immune to COVID, there's also a concern with especially within long COVID people that there's immune dysregulation, right? The immune system's not working very well in lots of people. Now that might be 3% of people, 5% of people, but if that's the whole country, that's a very large pool of people whose immune systems aren't working the same, right? So if we had some straight messaging, I think we would just change things dramatically. But we've got to get away from this hybrid immunity strategy. Hybrid immunity is incredibly damaging way of thinking. It says infection is good. You know, infection is our friend. Infection means immunity. It doesn't. Infection means disease. Infection means disrupted workplaces and businesses and schools. Infection is bad and to be avoided. That needs to be our our message.
0: Yeah. And infection means long COVID, which the Burnett Institute's submission to the inquiry into long COVID and repeated infections makes a very clear point about multiple times I actually spent the morning reading through many of the submissions and it was really harrowing reading. And I think that you probably need a content warning if you're reading it, because it can be really depressing to read the experiences of people who are suffering right now from long COVID, who are being in some cases disbelieved or minimized by medical professionals who just don't really understand it very well, or some of the kind of presentations that it might have, like dysautonomia is one that's really underrecognized. I did want to touch on or more than touch on long COVID because it's so important. It's just that elephant in the room and we talked about it last time to some degree, but your really fantastic submission from the Burnett Institute takes us through a lot of the research locally but also globally around long COVID and not only its prevalence but who it affects, who's most at risk, how long their long COVID symptoms might last for, and there are some people where it hasn't finished. It's still going. You know, this is not just a three month thing or a one year thing for some people. It it literally doesn't have an ending yet. But there's also a discussion as well about reinfection and the risks of long COVID for that. And I think there was an assumption that, oh, well, I'll be fine. I got vaccinated. I won't get long COVID, you know, and I'm young, and very healthy, and I'm a marathon runner, I won't get long COVID. A lot of these kind of assumptions, which for many people now, they realize aren't true. Could you take us through long COVID and the nature of it? Because I think it also gives us clear insight into the nature of COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which as we know, is not just a respiratory infection. It affects multiple body systems, it has significant vascular elements to it and there are two components the long covid part but also the post covid complications so if we start with long covid and the nature of it and just your general assessment of it right now in australia but even internationally if you have views around that and what we might learn from other countries
1: yeah no no happy to and i think that last point i'll start with i mean long covid in australia is not going to be different to long covid in similar demographic, you know, socioeconomic countries, right? It'd be, I'm just, why would it be? Of course, we're in this specific circumstance where, as I mentioned earlier, we got vaccinated before we got infected to a large extent, and the and the virus most of us seen is Omicron and not others. And all of those things turn out to be quite good things, probably with respect to long COVID. In other words, it's better to be vaccinated than not vaccinated. It's better probably to have had Omicron than Delta. But with those things taken into account, it looks like four to five percent of people who get infected, much less linked to the normal risk factors that we think of for severe COVID. right? Um, But four to five percent of people who get COVID are going to come down with some form of chronic illness as a result of uh, COVID. Now, if 10,000 people got COVID in a year, that wouldn't be that big a number. But if 10 million people, which is what's happened this year, there's every chance it'll happen again next year, people get COVID or you know, 5 million or whatever it might be, then, then they're astronomically large numbers. And, of course, there's a full spectrum of severity there, but a decent portion are off work. You'll see in those dispositions of of people who've written into the long COVID infra it's it's common for them to say it's wrecked my life, it's ruined my life, right? And it's and it's real. And to, you know, you to your point about not being taken seriously by the medical profession? Well, just ask a chronic fatigue sufferer. Right? This is exactly pretty pretty standard fare. Uh, incidentally, one of the best. It's still a preprint paper, so I won't call it a publication. It's a detailed biomedical examination of immunological markers in long COVID patients. And anyway, they they. Uh, researchers identify some signatures uh, in your in your blood that are common to long COVID. But one of the interesting conclusions they make is that, having identified those signatures, which are randomly AI-driven signatures in samples that they got versus samples from people without long COVID, when they then match that to self-reported long the people who came in to self-report, they found a ninety-four percent match. And one of the conclusions is. If someone reports that they've got long COVID, they really do. Right now, you or I don't need convincing about that, but this was very powerful biomedical data to say to your GP or to any medical professional, trust your patient because they are almost certainly correct about the symptoms that they have. As I say, chronic fatigue sufferers could have told you that a long time ago, but I'd never seen as good sort of biomedical Correlation with that, so it's a very serious issue. You know, when you won't find politicians talking much about it. But Mark Butler said quite a few good things. Our minister for health, as has interestingly enough, the treasurer, Jim Chalmers, in the lead up to his skills summit, he said that COVID has, and I quote, absolutely smashed the labour market in Australia. And he said that as he stood there on that day. 31,000 Australians were out of work, off work, because of long COVID. And that, that was, you know, a super serious issue that they were going to have to think about for the future as more and more people got long COVID. And so it's all obviously on Treasury's mind. This is just a very practical issue, right? You need people at work. You need uh, you need um, people at home who care for children who are also at work um, to to be able to um, do what they do for society to function normally. So it's a massive issue for Australia as it is for the rest of the world. You do recover from long COVID quite often, three months, six months, 12 months later. There are those people who don't recover or some symptoms that don't recover. In some people, two years later, they've still got it. But I don't think if you've got long COVID, you should completely despair that there's not a way out There is every chance you're going to recover as terribly debilitating as it is. But we definitely don't have the answers to long COVID. Mechanistically, I'm going to talk about it in a moment and perhaps what some of the answers might be. But the most important part of the long COVID inquiry that has come out just today, there's a discussion paper that the government has put out, good on them. For putting a discussion about this, this is not our long COVID inquiry results, but here's some of the views that we've got back. They've said the best way to avoid long COVID is to avoid COVID. That's the Australian government response. Is in the Burnett uh, submission too. You might have noticed yeah. because it's, it's obvious at the moment we don't actually know what to do once you've got it. So the best way to prevent it is to not get COVID in the first place. As corny as that sounds, it should to our earlier conversation, change the mindset around transmission. Infection is not good, not good in anyone, not good in kids, not good in healthy young adults. You know, the primary risk factor for long COVID is women between the ages of 30 and 55 or so. Do people know that? We're not talking about 75-year-old obese men here, which is I think the sort of mindset people think about who's at risk. Is 30- to 55-year-old women we don't know the reasons for that two or three times the risk of of others in the in the community actually a little bit similar to chronic fatigue so really really serious issue massive numbers because of the numbers of the infection so you can imagine that just reducing the covid burden by a half right is transformative it's not bringing it down to zero bringing that covid burden down to a half or a third or a quarter is completely transformative to millions of people for their risk of acute disease and then you know hundreds of thousands of people for the risk of long COVID. Now, mechanistically, it's interesting. And I think this year, if we speak again in the next six to 12 months, Amy, the hottest biomedical area is going to be why. What's driving long COVID? And where the research is at at the moment is that a significant part of what's driving long COVID is probably actual COVID. You still have the virus, or you still have fragments of the virus in you. That's, as I say, that's a hot area of research at the moment. One of the reasons for thinking that is your immune response is functioning like it's fighting the virus months later, a year later than it was. It's still fighting it, but it's you know it's supposed to be gone. There is evidence of of the virus and viral fragments. Remaining in our body for a very long period of time. So, if the virus in a proportion of people is there for a long period of time, you get this chronic immune activation, and this is kind of separate to the inflammatory damage that we mentioned in acute. So, the blood vessels getting damaged, and you know, COVID is much more than an infection of your respiratory tract, as you said. Blood vessels are damaged. There's in generalized inflammation. Heart disease, you know, is a is a is a big consequence of that. This is long term viral persistence in some sites is is the interesting science because that's how it's behaving. Now, if that turns out to be true, this is actually a good thing because it opens up a therapy being antiviral therapies, right? We have a good one at the moment. Uh, In a year's time, I hope there'll be a handful more top-class antivirals. So it'd be terrific if it wasn't just the more blunt instrument anti-inflammatories. You know, there will be other therapies that will go with it, but it'd be really terrific if it turns out that long COVID can actually be treated as COVID. I know, I know that it sounds really horrible that the virus is in you for ages, but what's mm. best is to really understand the mechanism because if you understand the mechanism like that, it does give you solutions. So a lot of water to go under the bridge there, but uh, it does turn out that your immune system looks like it's chronically activated, there's elements of it looking exhausted. There is a a real definition around some of your cells being exhausted. What we see in a deep dive or two that have been done in people's blood with long COVID, 12 months after their COVID infection, is all of a sudden they have other things too. They have all of us have viruses in us that are dormant. They're mostly herpes viruses, you know, Epstein Barr virus, varicella, I mentioned before, chickenpox virus, herpes simplex virus. Some people get cold sores. I mean, I don't get them, but I bet I've got herpes simplex in me. Cytomegalovirus, these are all herpes viruses that live quietly in us, probably for our whole life without ever seeing anything. A long COVID patient has these viruses reactivated at high frequency. What's going on there? So there, there does seem to be this um, this inflammation, not just that looks like it's COVID-driven inflammation, but inflammation driven to these other viruses that are there again. So there's immune dysfunction, and there's a lot of interest as to whether that makes a certain proportion of people then more susceptible to other infections. Right? Is that why we're seeing strange disease patterns? There's other reasons why you can see that strange disease patterns. But if five percent of your whole population has a degree of immune dysregulation, right? That's an enormous impact on how other pathogens, the ecology of other pathogens, is in your community. How those diseases might flow through a community, how they might get a foothold in people that otherwise wouldn't have got a foothold in, and and so on. So, the hottest areas of of, of biology that I've flagged, I think, for the next six to twelve months will be around this potential COVID persistence in the body. And this effect on the immune system as a result this immune dysregulation that might occur, at least in long COVID patients, that helps explain their own syndrome. For example, long COVID patients have low cortisol levels, actually much like um, chronic fatigue patients. We don't know why that is, but cortisol is very strongly anti-inflammatory, right? So if you've got low COVID, you've got much more inflammation. So COVID is... Is both in acute way, as I mentioned earlier, and definitely in a chronic way, is an inflammatory disease. It's our immune system not working in the normal way that it should, but in a in a chronically activated or hyper-inflamed way that's creating these problems. So really serious. Of course, we've got um, lots of syndromes that people say, "How come it can be a kidney disease in one person? How can it be a heart attack in another person? Stroke, dementia, diabetes," and and that's because your blood system. Is a generalized system right? It goes everywhere, and this is a largely inflammatory disease of your blood vessels. Right. So then, on top of that, if you've got a, a you know underlying kidney problem or whatever other cofactor might be, it can come out differently. So we've got a really serious issue. Some of which we know about enough to be really concerned. Much of which we've yet to learn, and the precautionary principles of emergency and pandemic management would say it's pretty smart to avoid infection until we know more, right? Mm. Uh, but even what we do know is enough to avoid infection. I think, you know, the fact that risk groups are very different to the acute groups, involve young people, involve mild infection, involve vaccinated and unvaccinated people, makes this a really serious, potentially a sort of mass disabling type event is the phrase that's used. It's, it's really quite true that could be upon us already certainly a threat if we keep infections going and going and going that we want to avoid from a health toll and definitely from an economic perspective as well.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people who've had post-viral syndromes not related to COVID could see this coming a mile away and were very concerned about it. It also makes me think there aren't enough trained immunologists to deal with the amount of immune dysregulation we're seeing and will continue to see because they're not that common. But there's also a reluctance to prescribe some of those immune modulating drugs like I'm thinking colchicine is one example, but even immunosuppressants like corticosteroids, even things like low dose naltrexone. These are are drugs which a lot of physicians don't really feel comfortable prescribing outside the box of what their guidelines suggest are appropriate. So a lot of these people with long COVID find themselves really stuck in terms of treatments. And as you point out, antivirals is another area that could be pursued, but of course is another thing that only a few people can really convince their doctor to give them as a treatment, you know, off-label treatment for long COVID. So yeah, there's so many challenges that are being faced right now for those patients. And I guess relating back to long COVID and the long COVID clinics, we've seen discussions about the fact that their funding is tiny. A lot of it is in kind, so internal from the hospital, lending people out from other clinics. The funding apparently is ending in December. So a lot of these long COVID clinics that did exist may not exist if the federal government and state governments don't step in. But there are also things that are brought up in these submissions to suggest that long COVID clinics aren't necessarily the answer either. A lot of these long COVID clinics are in that position you've pointed out. You know, there isn't a clear treatment plan or guideline for people. There still isn't a clear understanding of what's driving long COVID. And so a lot of people wait for this long COVID clinic appointment and they report that really there's nothing that they're given. They just say, oh, well, you can be reassured that you'll be able to be treated in the community by your gp and referred to a rehab clinic as an outpatient where they'll suggest a bit of exercise which is also potentially problematic with things like graded exercise therapy being a very bad idea for syndromes like chronic fatigue like we've already discussed so if you think about the practicalities of someone in the position right now of having long COVID the lack of information, perhaps even misinformation among physicians, a lack of expertise in some areas like the immunology area, dysautonomia area, and cardiovascular effects like postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, uh, and also long COVID clinics may not be the answer. Where does that leave a huge number of Australians who stuck really. Mm. And 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 maybe they're in the prime of their life. As you say, they feel like their life has been ruined and they don't know how to regain their function to be able to participate.
1: It's still really important that they get taken seriously. So that's the first point. And, and it's incredibly helpful to a sufferer of chronic disease, uh, which we knew before long COVID, for it to be full frontally acknowledged and accepted. And and having long COVID clinics with that title and a dedicated staff that are there for you helps that enormously. Before you even get to therapy, they don't have a lot to give you at the moment, and at least they could say that. It's not nothing, though. Mm. Uh, and as I say, long COVID manifests itself differently in, in, in different people. They're learning more all the time. But it's super important that they have somewhere to go to get the latest information as it is. Those of us who have long COVID need to understand there is no magic bullet solution. There's nothing nothing being withheld from us. We don't know what to do just yet. It's not nothing, but there is no magic bullet solution. What I've been talking about with potentials for the future in understanding persistent virus understanding the nature of the inflammatory response to know what sort of agents might be used is to a degree for the future we've got to fast track that and push it like crazy clinical trials and so on like that has to be pushed as priority number one and you could definitely argue whether that's happening globally not just in Australia but as it stands right now it's not it's not there to be taken. So what I'm hoping comes out of this long COVID inquiry is a full-on recognition of its significance, is a big mark of acceptance of those who are suffering. So that each and every person who's got long COVID knows that there is a community that understands, that is a community that is going to wrestle in this next six to 12 months with the solution for it. Um, that there are some things you need to be wary of, you know, like the exercise issue that you mentioned. You can't just necessarily grade it exercise your way out of it, but that you you need to find a a physician and a service that takes you seriously. It doesn't have to be a long COVID clinic, but if you haven't found one, you need to keep looking uh, because it's not acceptable for it not to be taken seriously. You've got increased cardiovascular risk, for example. You've got increased risk of of diabetes and uh, depending on other risk factors. This needs to be monitored and checked out. To those physicians out there wanting to help, there there are not magical things that they can do. Um, We've got to really up the ante with respect to research. I find in Australia, as an extension of the COVID is over, COVID is just like the flu mantra, there is an underplaying of long COVID. Oh, we don't know if if long COVID is the same in Australia as elsewhere. I mean, really, that's an incredibly unhelpful way to start the discussion when you've even got your own federal treasurer saying there's 31,000 people out of work because of long COVID. You know, it's, it's incredible. Yes, we don't know all the details. Yes, we don't know the numbers. Yes, we can be happy that um, we've got an Omicron base and not not a Delta base, but we already know, that's already known, that that leaves a 4 or 5% burden and, and really ser- serious context. So it's like the acute issues that we were mentioning before, we first just have to face it front on. That is the most important element that is going to help the community. You want to know, though, what can be done for those who have long COVID. And I'd say the most important thing is to be acknowledged and to find medical care that does acknowledge that. There's going to need to be patient activist groups uh, like we haven't seen since the HIV days, I suspect to uh, force change but the long COVID inquiry is a bit of a ray of sunshine actually and let's hope let's hope like crazy that that leads to a significant change I mean I'm I'm not yeah I'm not holding my breath but 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 it is happening and mm. today's discussion paper is very helpful so you know uh, I, we might be heading somewhere that is constructive but it is it's difficult because remember how challenging this is for policymakers. If you've driven a policy that says it's okay for lots of people to get infected, and then it turns out that it wasn't, are those same people still capable of turning it around? I hope so. I worry about that, actually. I think they're put in a really difficult position. It's the nature of the public health world that we're in, right? The decisions that good people make have very significant impact on the life and death situations for so many people. As I say, twenty-five thousand Australians will die this year who would otherwise not have died. Most Australians don't know that, but it's a it's a huge number based on the sort of decisions we made. Omicron is mild. Hands off the old doherty model to exit carefully was thrown out the window right? From my point of view, that was a big mistake. I couldn't believe that was happening back in December 2021. You know, that was the start of saying, the virus is actually our friend. You know, we're going to push through this one wave in January, and it'll all be okay. Then when that didn't happen, we'll push through this next wave. When that didn't happen, we'll push through this next wave. We're now in our fourth wave, saying hybrid immunity is our way out, right? Are these same people capable of the shift in gears that I'm looking for, the 180 attitude change to say, actually, we gave that a go. (laughs) It's not looking right. Can we become anti-transmission again? We've got the ways to do it. We don't have to go into lockdown. We don't even have to make a rule. We just have to be really straight with the Australian people. You've got to wear a mask because this is really serious. You know, businesses, you've got to have your places ventilated or air cleaned if it can't be well ventilated because you're putting your staff at risk. You're putting your school kids at risk. You're putting your teachers at risk. You've got to get tested because you, you don't want to risk not getting treated if you're positive. And we're going to make it easy for you. In fact, we're going to make it easy for you to not just get tested, but to get a mask. None of that's a rule change. That's just being straight. And yeah, a bit of money to provide some some tools. But as I said before, can you imagine the money saved if, you, if we halved, just halved the rate of COVID? Five million people, not 10 million people. You imagine the savings it would dwarf any cost you might have in providing free masks or free testing. So I know that the views I have are not winning the day. They're not mainstream. Right, which is very unusual in my working life. I've got <laughs> to say <laughs> um Mr. Boring Conservative Public Health Brennan, but I know they're not winning the day. And it, there's a very general acceptance of the sorts of things we've been speaking about today. As being wrong, but they are wrong. Infection, as, as part of a strategy, is wrong, and if that's not the strategy, that needs to be explicitly said to the Australian people. But it's very hard to do, right? We just had an election in Victoria. We just had a news poll federally yesterday, both of which demonstrated that the Prime Minister and Premiers who oversee very open COVID rules, where has seen a you know the sorts of problems we've talked about wildly popular. Talking about COVID, not just actually having COVID, but talking about COVID is toxic. They cannot do it. Politically, Mm. you can't do it, right? They are wildly popular. And obviously, they're doing other good things, which is one of the reasons. But normally, I would say, if you're on track for 25,000 people dying in a year, there'd be some accountability for that, right? Really, guys? Are you doing enough for us, the citizens who you represent? In normal circumstances, you would imagine that would be the case. Really, 500,000 people have long COVID and many of us can't work again. But actually, talking about those things is toxic. We have to understand that that's the position that they're in. These are not bad people. Understand what are the forces that are driving that and seeing if we can influence it. Because at the moment, I get distressed and I've used that word distressed enough to do what I'm doing now and speak out about it all as much as I can but most of the Australian public is pretty comfortable with what's happening now.
0: Yeah well it's become toxic to do anything about it as well I think. One example I wanted to just bring in here because I know a lot of doctors personally and in my friendship groups uh, and they work in hospital settings and I've seen such a wide range of approaches in hospitals now where even in some ICUs They've completely removed any mask requirement for their staff and they've even then said because of that, that they won't be supplying N95s and that supply will dwindle over time and you'll have to bring your own if you want to wear one at all. So that then has the effect that any doctor who wants to wear one or a nurse will feel that social pressure. Oh, well, my colleagues aren't wearing one why should I wear one? That then echoes out into the population as well. Oh, well, most people aren't wearing a, a mask. Why do I need to wear one? There does seem to be this ongoing pressure now and toxicity, as you say, that's come from the top down, that's now so hard to push up against. And I count myself as someone who does push up against it. And I know you do too, Brendan. But for those listeners now who are wanting to push up against it, who have been, who feel the social pressure, but are still pushing forward, or those people who feel the social pressure, but they think, okay, no, I, can- I will do something. I can do something. I, you know, I might have had COVID, but I want to reduce the number of times I get it. You know, I don't want those Absolutely. post-viral complications. I don't want to get a stroke or a heart attack early. You know, I don't want clotting. I don't want long COVID what are those things you've mentioned them as a top line but if someone wants to get really like practical right now what's in brendan crab's toolkit what would you say has got you through this pandemic so far
1: well I, I i do it's top line but it's also good to think simply you know vaccines clean air testing that is all you need to remember and then there's detail underneath each of those things but vaccines clean air and testing and any workplace, any situation that isn't taking those things seriously, you should feel like you should say why. You go into a restaurant, the windows are closed, and there's you can't see any HEPA filter. You should be able to say, do you do you have a COVID safe plan? Do you have a clean air plan? And that should not be a joke. Right? One day it won't be a joke, and it, it's it's the same as allowing smoking in your workplace. There, there is a time, of course, when I was younger that that we would have be having this same conversation about smoking, right? And the yeah. public would think it's ridiculous for us to be saying, "Of course, you should smoke on the aeroplane and in a restaurant <laughs> and in our workplace." Now, the mindset—I have no doubt—that we are on the right side of history. Yeah. Right. When you and I talk in the longer-term future, not in a year or so, unfortunately, you will be expected. We will be expected to provide clean air for people like we give clean water. I mean, no one is saying because we've got much lower diarrheal diseases, we can let the water go, right, because we've got immunity debt. to No one's saying that. We're saying this is fantastic, right? Mm. And we will be saying the same thing in the future and not just about COVID, right? We have this amazing tolerance of serious respiratory infections. You know, when... Australia had serious uh, restrictions when we really did have restrictions on movement in 2020, we saved five or 6,000 lives. We didn't save them from COVID. Obviously, we had no COVID. We saved them from respiratory infections that the community didn't get. And I'm not saying you ever want to go back to that. There was a message there. Our whole health system is trying to save lives. We try to have less cancer. We try to have less diabetes. We try to have less heart disease. And we try to have less infectious disease. And here was an experiment that said, actually, you could have less infectious disease. Right? So we will have a clean air revolution. And and you know, that's going to start with the very listeners that we're speaking to now saying, you know, when you ring a ring up a restaurant to make a booking, you can say, What's your what's your airborne mitigations? So we don't have one. Is there you've got windows that they're nearly always receptive. We do this all the time. My partner and I and many friends just ask, and they're nearly always receptive. Sometimes you can't do it, not going to go there, right? Yeah. I'm sorry to um, those in hospitality. I'm just using that <laughs> as an example. It could be anywhere. It could be absolutely anywhere mm. you can ask. In fact, I found hospitality where the industry in the really tough days that got very creative about helping us all. So so I'm not by any means singling them out. Just saying be Definitely up to date with your vaccinations. I don't understand why it's tougher for kids to get vaccinated. I don't understand why it's tougher for older kids to get their third dose. I don't understand why, you know, people like me can't get a dose within six months of the next because we had our fourth. Those questions need to be asked. What they're really saying is it's better to get infected than vaccinated. That's nonsense. That is yep. nonsense.
0: And COVID so, isn't seasonal.
1: Exactly. So we need to prove it's definitely not
0: it's seasonal. Not a, well, it, the ATAGI response seemed to know. be it's seasonal, so you just need a once-a-year booster around wintertime, which we I four, couldn't believe.
1: four waves this year. Exactly, yeah. Amy. So what the hell? It is complete nonsense. We will see that clean air revolution. Be brave with a, a mask and a high-quality mask. Don't be afraid to have a conversation about you know, hey, it's great you've got a surgical mask, but um, now that we know what we know about airborne transmission, um, you know, the very places that I've been saying you should ask about clean air often provide all sorts of things uh, hand sanitizer, big sign up, we're going to be COVID safe, mm. please be wary, you know, be socially distanced. There's a willingness to do something right, they just don't know what to do. Right. Yeah. And yes, that's got to come from the top, but there has to be a bit of a movement. This is a pretty radical shift, right? We thought, the world thought, respiratory infections were transmitted by fomites, by large droplets. It turns out that's not true as the main mechanism that COVID's transmitted or that many other respiratory infections are transmitted. It's still very important to wash your hands and sanitize. I am not in any way saying against that, but it's not the primary mode of transmission of COVID, and so a surgical mask is much better than no mask because big droplets come out of your mouth. They turn into fine droplets, especially if you're the one who's ill, but it is not an N95 respirator type mask, which frankly I find more comfortable to wear anyway Same. than a yeah. surgical mask. And it would be great for people to know that, tell that story. And then there's the testing one. we have got to demand testing. It's nuts to not have testing. And 24-year-old people in insecure work have to feel like they can get tested Mm. right there's no incentive let alone ability for that to happen anymore so vaccination clean air if you can't breathe clean air wear a mask and get tested because if you get tested you can get treated or you can isolate right so it is very simple it's not overly complicated we make it very complicated we make access to some of those things so incredibly tough that does not need to be the case. But whether it's bean counters in the way, whether it's a flawed strategy uh, of saying infection is actually good we'll just protect the vulnerable uh, or a combination of those things, Um, I mean, I think the business lobby has got a bit to answer for from my perspective, not all the business lobby, but acting in what they think is their self-interest. It's actually a, a big own goal that they've They've kicked by pushing so hard for, for open, unfettered COVID transmission. But, you know, it's, it's led to us in this very, oh, I find, quite dark place where we've just got a complacent acceptance of sort of 15 plus percent of Australians dying than would usually have died of a massive long COVID tail of a very large proportion of our community living, you know, millions of people living in greater fear than they otherwise would, not going out. You know, Amy, something that we've talked about quite a bit in a, in a kind of a prison yeah. because the rest of us want to be free. Mm. So the price we're willing to pay is for that group not to be free. That's not how a community works, not a functioning, successful community. So that's why I get distressed. That's why it's we're in a, you know, from my perspective, in a dark place that is the total opposite to the prevailing view of, you know, few now we can get on with with life, and and things are optimistic, and we're looking forward. And these are the sort of slogans that politicians I really admire, otherwise really admire, have said. Um, but it's a it's a it's a damaging and very wrong path that uh, we're currently on.
0: Yeah, and I think the idea that we're actually protecting the vulnerable is wrong. Because what the federal government and others have said is, well, we're looking after those in aged care and people with a disability, and the assumption is that those people live in residential care. But so many people in Australia with a disability or a chronic illness don't live in residential care. They have their own homes or live with their families, and they are stuck at home and they aren't going out very often, and they're always wearing an N95, and they talk to me and send me messages saying so and how much they're despairing right now. So hearing your voice about this, you know, is very comforting and reassuring to them because they do feel very alone, and what you're saying is making a difference. So, you know, the fact that you're pushing up against such a big tide is really meaningful for many people. So we do appreciate it, Brendan.
1: Thanks, Amy.
0: Yeah, and I just wanted to also say on the testing front, I did see that Dr. Chris Moyes said that rapid antigen tests aren't necessarily as accurate at the moment because of the Omicron variants. And that's something I think that's being discussed in the scientific community. But just as you pointed out with your anecdotal example of seeing a, a faint rapid antigen test line, if you're not sure and you still have symptoms, try and get a PCR I think that to me is the thing that I've most noticed is lots of people are saying, oh, I've got lots of symptoms, I've got this huge cough and I'm really, really sick and my whole family has COVID, but I'm still negative on a rapid antigen test. To me, the thought I would have is go get a PCR test. And I hope that that's what some people will be able to do, even if it's really hard and even get your GP to give you a form in advance, you know, just have it on you so you can just take it when you think you've got COVID.
1: Yeah, most definitely get a PCR. I mean, it's not as easy as it once was, but it is still being offered. You need a GP referral, depending where you are. You can't just necessarily drive up to a clinic. Some places you can, but as you say, please get a, a PCR. Rats are good, right? Don't give up on rats. Mm. If, if you can have a cupboard full of them, please do. But I, I I certainly know they're not cheap and they're not as good as a PCR. They are not. No one's ever said they're a good a regular screening tool, which is really effective. Look, I'd also say that if you're symptomatic with something that is not COVID, we've learned a lesson that it's still good to not pass that on. Right? Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean yeah. you should stay home for seven days. I'm not saying that by any means. But we've learned a lot about what it is to protect other people. You know, if you're not a big mask wearer except that you're wary of these things, wear them when you're sick, COVID or not COVID, right? Right. Be really conscious of the fact that you're a part of a transmission chain for something, COVID or non-COVID, and that somewhere down the track could have a really significant consequence. All of these deaths occur because there was a transmission train somewhere around in in, in the case of COVID. And conversely, you could be the one that stops that chain. Mm. Uh, so, So take your respiratory illnesses seriously, perhaps a bit more than we've done in the past, Understand that it's not just not shaking someone's hand. It is in the air. So perhaps wear that mask in a circumstance and you wouldn't have normally worn it. Or, you know, don't go to that crowded setting where you can infect other people. Now, I think pre-COVID, we all thought that a bit. We did think that a bit. Oh, you know, I've got a cold at the moment. I'm going to do it. Let's take that a little bit more seriously, right? It isn't just COVID or nothing. Respiratory infections are not a good thing. And we've now got so many tools, particularly the clean air one. You know, if you can afford it, have your house with filters in it. Do it yourself. Your workplaces most definitely should have clean air. And we'll end up with other solutions to UV treated air, you know, that's that's coming and so on to um, to to prevent respiratory infection. So you don't have to be totally COVID obsessed here. If you're symptomatic, try and not pass that on, regardless of whether you know it's COVID or not.
0: Yeah, yeah. Brendan, it's been really excellent speaking with you. I know everyone listening will be just as grateful as I am to hear from you with so much depth and nuance and insight. So, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. It's been invaluable to us.
1: No, it's a great pleasure, as always, Amy. And uh, I realize that um, it is a bit against the tide at the moment. I don't think it will be forever. And whatever, who cares? You've got to no. do what you think is the right thing.
0: We're going to keep going. I'm pushing up against it with you. We'll stand in a long <laughs> chain with our masks on. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much to Professor Brendan Crabb, Director and CEO of the Burnett Institute in Melbourne. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3 R FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.